Episode 36 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.11, Nephite Eastern Campaign, Final Reconquest, Battle Analyses, Battle of Chance Encounter, and Second Battle of Nephiha. This episode begins with the ending of the Second Kingman Dissension Campaign, which occurred, as we are told in Alma chapter 62, verse 11, with the ending of the 30th year of the reign of the judges. In verse 12, the story continues in the 31st year of the reign of the judges with the reordering of the war effort. Pahoran and Moroni distributed resources and reoriented the effort toward the east. Even as they were doing this, Amaron was also reordering his own war effort. As I have said several times before, there were no modern communications. Each of these leaders only knew what they were informed by runners, captives, or those they passed by. It seemed to be the case with the new year of the 31st year of the reign of the judges that Amaron still believed that the kingmen held Zarahemla and that he wanted to reinforce that effort with the Lamanite army numbering somewhere around 10,000 strong. At the same time, Moroni and Pahoran marched from Zarahemla toward Nephiha to recapture the city that had fallen the previous year and that was the genesis for the fiery letter sent by Moroni and the response by Pahoran that resulted in the successful campaign against the kingmen as we discussed last episode and that are covered in Alma chapters 60, 61, and the beginning of chapter 62. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine, and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Amaron's Strategy Amaron is an interesting character. We have few details on his personality. We certainly have a lot less on him than we do on his brother Amalickiah. As we get to the end of the Amalickiahite War, here is what I think that we know about him. Amaron seemed, as commented on earlier, to look for the easy path. This was especially true as a military commander. He did not seem to seek to impose his will on his opponent or on the battlefield, but he rather took what the enemy provided and worked within those constraints, rather successfully, I might add. I'm not saying this as a criticism. Recognizing where success is to be found and seeking it out rather than wasting resources in a vain attempt to impose will where there is no success to be found is commendable in a commander. As an example, when the East was too strong, Amron split his forces and conducted operations in the West while simply holding in the East. Then the West defeated his forces and he reconsolidated into a single army and massed in the East to take a city once again, specifically the city of Nephiha. This was done even though the record demonstrates that the Lamanite army was tactically better at capturing cities and that it had capabilities the Nephites did not. Why not recruit and return to the offensive in the West? We are not given information sufficient to understand the mind of Amaron or his intent at that time, nor are we given information on the political constraints under which he operated. For all we know, the Lamanites may have been riven with political discord, and he was constantly battling problems at home 
as he struggled to maintain and justify a war that his brother began. From what information Mormon provided, either Amron was simply attacking what was offered, directing his efforts against weakness, or he might have been prosecuting another strategy, linking up with the kingmen. Nephiha was away from the coast and possibly on a path from the seashore to Zarahemla. Thus, it made a logical next step if Zarahemla, then controlled by the kingmen, was the objective of the Lamanite effort against Nephiha in the 30th year of the reign of the judges. First Battle of Nephiha Amron's army in the east was strengthened by the reinforcements coming from the west, as we are told in Alma 59.6. This large and combat-experienced army was thrown against Nephiha, and they took it, inflicting an exceedingly great slaughter on the Nephites there. The tactics used in this assault are once again not noted, but as mentioned in previous episodes 28 and 29, or parts 6.3 and 6.4, the Lamanites, and especially those coming from the west, knew how to take cities. There are few details on the battle. Mormon said in Alma 59.7 that the Lamanites were exceedingly numerous and that they received strength daily. The phrase used was that the Lamanites came forth. Again, this meant an attack, but it is unclear the specifics in the type or nature of the attack. The Nephite garrison at Nephiha was probably standard for the time. The fact that Moroni saw it as relatively weak and in need of strengthening expressed that it was no larger than 2,000 men and probably smaller. The capture of Nephiha coincided with Moroni's plan to reinforce the garrison there. Amaron was ahead of him, and this must have added to Moroni's frustration. As I previously mentioned, the loss of Nephiha led to the scathing epistle written by Moroni as recorded in Alma chapter 60, and the battle with the kingmen discussed in the previous episode. Reordering the War Effort The fighting with the kingmen and the trials and executions that followed took most of the 30th year of the reign of the judges. It was not until the beginning of the 31st year of the reign of the judges that Moroni returned to the issue of fighting Amaron. His first acts were to reinforce the armies on the perimeter. We are told in Alma 62 verse 12 that he sent 6,000 men with provisions to Helaman II to defend the west and we are told in Alma 62.13 that he sent a further 6,000 with provisions to the east to reinforce Lehi and Teancum. These actions speak to a dual sense of confidence and concern. Moroni was confident in that he dispatched 12,000 men to various parts of the country rather than concentrate his forces to defeat a particularly strong Lamanite force. He also showed his concern for the perimeter. He felt he needed to reinforce these commanders as they did not currently have the forces necessary to preserve or fortify their respective areas of responsibility without the large increase. We are told in Alma 62.14 that Moroni left another large body of men at Zarahemla and took an equally described group with him. What a large body was is unclear, but there are some hints. First, Moroni and Pahoran are both mentioned, and probably both commanded similar-sized forces with subordinate commanders for each. 
In the previous episode, I suggested that Moroni took only his army of 2,000 to as many as 4,000 to go to Zarahemla and fight the kingmen. Most of these probably continued with Moroni. The army directly under the command of Moroni probably numbered about 8,000, the original 2,000 and an additional 6,000, with Pahoran commanding an army of about 6,000. This places the combined army of the governor and chief captain at about 14,000. I want to address the significance of these numbers right now. If Moroni directed 6,000 to Helaman II and 6,000 to Lehi II and Tiancum, he took 6,000 with him and he left 6,000 in Zarahemla with another possible 6,000 with Pahoran, this amounts to a very significant 30,000 forces committed to battle. It is possible that this designation of a 6,000 might have effectively meant something like three armies and not been an exact figure. That said, let us suppose that the numbers are accurate depictions of forces committed. This meant that the actions of the kingmen kept more forces pinned down in the center of the country than existed in all of the then-committed armies actually engaged with the Lamanite enemy in battle. For those wondering what disunity means in a numerical sense, this brief discussion on forces committed in these few verses in Alma chapter 62, verses 12 to 14, explain that disunity weakens your force by greater than 50%, or that you are less than half as strong as you should otherwise be. That is a powerful backhanded way to advocate for unity. Battle of Chance Encounter We are addressing two battles in this episode, in part because one of the battles is only covered in a very brief way in the text, and that it occurred as the opposing armies marched toward opposite destinations. The Lamanite army was probably coming from Nephiha and going to Zarahemla, and the Nephite army was coming from Zarahemla and going toward Nephiha. Before we get into the limited details of the battle, I want to address the definition of a movement to contact and a meeting engagement. From the 2017 United States Army Doctrinal Manual, or Field Manual 3-0, Operations, pages 7-32 and 7-34. Quote, Movement to contact is an offensive task designed to develop the situation and establish or regain contact. Commanders conduct a movement to contact when an enemy's situation is vague or not specific enough to conduct an attack. A movement to contact employs purposeful and aggressive reconnaissance and security operations to gain contact with the enemy main body and develop the situation. A meeting engagement is a combat action that occurs when a moving force incompletely deployed for battle engages an enemy at an unexpected time and place. I don't believe that Moroni was conducting a movement to contact, in that I think that he was expecting to get to Nephiha before he came into contact with the enemy. If I am correct, then this battle became a meeting engagement and each commander was forced to react as he sought to develop the situation. That said, it is probable that I am wrong, and that Moroni had established again his tradition for aggressive reconnaissance 
in the form of spies, and that he was aware of the oncoming army. And this was a movement to contact that Moroni quickly turned into an attack that resulted in a stunning success. This battle is recorded with only a couple of verses, and I want to quote them from Alma, chapter 62, verses 15 through 17. Quote, And it came to pass that as they were marching towards the land, they took a large body of men of the Lamanites and slew many of them and took their provisions and their weapons of war. And it came to pass, after they had taken them, they caused them to enter into a covenant that they would no more take up their weapons of war against the Nephites. And when they had entered into this covenant, they sent them to dwell with the people of Ammon. And they were in number about 4,000 who had not been slain. Close quote. I want to emphasize the use of the word took in verse 15. What does it mean? Does it mean that Moroni took them by surprise or that the result of the battle was that he took them captive? This may have been a fortified outer position or this could have been a Lamanite force sent to link up with the kingmen coming from Zarahemla. It could also have been a large Lamanite foraging party looking for food. We just don't know. Regardless of the original intent of the force, Moroni defeated and captured them and took their weapons and provisions. It is further unclear who initiated the notion of a covenant and an association with the people of Ammon. Maybe this was an option offered by Moroni or one of his captains. It is also possible that this was suggested by one of the captive Lamanites. What we know for certain is that Moroni agreed and sent 4,000 to live with them. This is yet another example of Moroni's reliance on covenants and the importance of them. The size and scope of this battle can be shaped from this final figure provided. If 4,000 were captured, then the total Lamanite army probably numbered between 8,000 and 16,000. This could mean that this battle featured a large number of casualties on the part of the Lamanites and that was facilitated by the Nephites taking the Lamanites by surprise. Moroni, Pahoran, and their armies continued their march and pitched their tents in the plains of Nephiha, outside the city of Nephiha, as we are told in Alma 62.18. The battle that follows was unique among the Moroni era of Nephite warfare in terms of those battles with which we have some detail, in that it is the only battle where the Nephite armies conduct a city assault. Though this may seem small, the details provided in this brief description of the battle provides tremendous insight about the strengths and weaknesses of the army of Moroni. Geographical Setting Location Nephiha was a city that enjoys some controversy in location, as it is referred to in several locations but there seems to have been only one city. Thus, one of the references must have been a mistake in the record-keeping. The initial reference in Alma chapter 50 verse 14 to Nephiha was as a city that was founded to join the lands of Aaron and Moroni. Given the time and the names of other cities founded at about the same time, the city was probably named to honor the chief judge and governor of the land at that time, Nephiha. It is clear from context that the city Nephiha was close to the city Moroni and that the initial reference must have been geographically accurate between the lands of Moroni and Aaron. 
the people of Moroni fled to Nephiha when the Lamanites first invaded under Amalekiah, as we are told in Alma 51.24. We are further told in Alma 51 verse 25 that Amalekiah avoided the city Nephiha in his offensive. The confusion comes in Alma 51 verse 26, when Mormon says that Amalekiah took the city Nephiha immediately after saying he avoided it. I think that the statement in verse 26 is either a misstatement on the part of Mormon, meaning that he made a mistake in the engraving, or Mormon was addressing some sort of nuance in that Amalekiah avoided attacking the city, but did take parts of the lands of Nephiha. Regardless of the confusion in Alma chapter 51, it is still clear that Nephiha was not along the seashore and was probably the next city inland as one traveled from Moroni or Lehi toward Zarahemla. The challenge of whether or not there were two such cities of Nephiha comes in Alma chapter 56 verse 25, where Helaman too in his letter to Moroni says, in describing the Lamanite theater situation, the following, quote, Neither durst they march down against the city of Zarahemla, neither durst they cross the head of Sidon over to the city of Nephiha. This seems to imply that the city of Nephiha was closer to the river Sidon and Zarahemla. One explanation may again be that this refers to the land of Nephiha rather than the city, and that the land of Nephiha was significant in size. There could also have been two cities named after Nephiha. Or, this could just be evidence that I don't really understand the Book of Mormon geography, and that it is possible to have a single city that is both between the cities of Moroni and Zarahemla, and still closer to the Sidon River. Terrain slash vegetation. The one geographical reference in our story is to the plains of Nephiha in Alma 62.18. It is probable that the plains of Nephiha were on the eastern side of the city, given the disposition of the Lamanite warriors during the night prior to this battle. Other than that, there were no other references to terrain or vegetation outside the city. The most important aspect of this battle is that so much of the pre-battle positioning was done at night. There is some limited description of the city. For example, in Alma 62 verse 24, we are told that it was a walled city with a pass. This is one of several references that make it difficult to understand if the Nephites were building walled cities with gates or whether there was simply a wall with a single opening that was more heavily defended, regardless of whether or not the pass referred to was a gate or an opening, the pass faced to the east and was oriented toward the wilderness and the other new cities built for Nephite defense rather than toward the west and Zarahemla. Who was involved? Nephite forces. I previously suggested that Moroni and Pahoran marched out of Zarahemla and fought the Battle of Chance Encounter with an army of about 14,000 men. This force included roughly 8,000 under the command of Moroni and subordinates and 6,000 under the command of Pahoran and subordinates. Moroni seemed to have been working with only his small force of veterans along with the recent additions rather than having rejoined his larger veteran army. We are not told of a spy network and given the fact that Moroni does much of the reconnaissance himself, it seems unlikely that he had a large and active spy network throughout the campaign.
The Battle of Chance Encounter must have caused casualties among Moroni's forces, and this meant a reduction of Moroni's army. Though, Mormon does not give any reference to Nephite losses in that battle. It is possible, then, that the casualties were limited, and that Moroni and Pahoran arrived at this battle with a force close to the originally estimated 14,000. Lamanite Forces The Lamanites were fearful of the Nephite armies camped in the plain before Nephihah, which was a city where they had been for about a year. Mormon recorded that the Lamanites refused to come out of the city and fight an open field battle because of the great courage of the Nephites and the greatness of their numbers. If Moroni had a total force of about 14,000, then the Lamanite force was equal to or less than the Nephites based on Lamanite concerns over the Nephite numbers. I want to set the Lamanite stage in Nephihah. The Lamanite army was a collection of forces who had relatively recently been defeated by combat or by stratagem in the West. Remember that from a Lamanite perspective, the last couple of battles in the West involved Helaman II tricking the Lamanites to surrender a city because the relief force was defeated in battle, and then tricking the Lamanites into a pursuit of a Nephite army that proved fruitless. This was probably an embarrassed and frustrated group of fighters who wanted or needed to redeem themselves. They were sent against the city Nephiha, which they took, and they were able to vent their frustration by slaughtering Nephites. About a year later, they sent off a large army, probably the larger portion of their army, towards Zarahemla, as I imagine, to link up with the kingmen there. Given the communications problems of the era, the fighters in Nephiha hadn't heard anything from that army, and then, all of a sudden, out of the wilderness, in the direction of march of their fellow fighters, came a Nephite army with Moroni and the governor of the land at its head. What were the Lamanite fighters and commanders thinking? I can imagine why they wouldn't have been inclined to face Moroni in an open field battle. The Lamanite warriors in Nephiha were not undisciplined or unseasoned warriors. These were veterans of campaigns in the West and maybe the East as well. They had lost cities to Helaman II and must have appreciated the strength of position afforded by the walls of the city and the general weakness of Nephite city assault techniques. The Lamanites camped mostly on a single side of the city, close by the entrance, on the east of the city. The Lamanites had been in the city of Nephiha since the 30th year of the reign of the judges, and this battle took place in the 31st year of the reign of the judges. They had at least several months to know the area and the city. Despite this, Moroni was able to surprise them with an escalade of the city walls. This speaks to a lack of Lamanite spies and local security. I can imagine that the majority, if not all, of the Lamanite spies were used in support of the Lamanite army, seemingly sent towards Zarahemla, and subsequently defeated at the Battle of Chance Encounter. Otherwise, being surprised by Moroni's arrival is a major security lapse that seems surprising for an army who fought Helaman II and that regularly conducted nighttime operations and pre-battle maneuvers. Key Leaders in the Battle Nephite Forces this is the first battle outside the city of Zarahemla where Pahoran is one of the battlefield leaders. No details of his battlefield role or experience are given, and therefore little can be surmised about his leadership or his experience. 
Lamanite forces. No specific commanders are mentioned. Technical context. There are three items of particular note in this battle. The use of the term pass rather than gate, the lack of Lamanite security, and the making of scaling ladders and ropes. Number one. It is difficult to assess the importance of the use of the word pass in Alma 62.24 or the earlier use of the word entrance in Alma 62.19. From the use of these words, it is unclear whether or not the city of Nephiha had a gate or a similarly protected entrance point. The first use of the word gate in the Book of Mormon in a security role is when Limhi questioned Ammon about his appearance and his boldness in approaching the Zenophite king when he was without his gate in Mosiah chapter 7 verse 10 and chapter 21 verse 23. The only other reference to gate in the Book of Mormon as an item of security is in referring to Nephi's garden gate by the highway as given in Helaman chapter 7 verse 10. Please note this. In all of the discussion of city fortifications and the detail of how the Nephites protected and secured their people, there is no explanation of a secure entrance point with protective door or gate. This is not definitive that the Nephites did not use gates, gate houses, etc., but it leaves room to question whether or not they did. It is possible from the words used that the Nephite cities had an entrance with no gate and relied on a narrow and restricted access point to channel the enemy into a killing zone where a waiting Nephite army could effectively defend against a much larger force. I offer this to challenge what you may have been thinking about in all of the discussions on walls and fortifications. I know that I almost always imagine a gate when I think of a city wall. Not all societies nor all military architects conceived of such a thing. This doesn't mean that gates weren't present, but my point is to emphasize that one shouldn't simply assume that a gate was a part of Nephite military architecture. Number two, this battle occurred more than a decade into the most complex Nephite-Lamanite conflict in the Book of Mormon record. Most, if not all, of the Lamanite warriors were veterans, from the Western Theater, and possibly the Eastern Theater as well. They had fought in, around, and against cities on numerous occasions. It is therefore surprising that after so much time and experience, and with a Nephite army camped on the plains outside the city, that the Lamanites were not more vigilant with their security. Why were there no guards posted? How did an entire Nephite army enter the city without detection? It is impossible to know the answers to these questions, as Mormon did not provide any definitive information. One thing to think about is an assumption of incompetence on the part of the Nephites. The Lamanites had not faced a competent Nephite city assault at all, ever. The only thing close to a successful city assault was at the Second Battle of Gid in the 29th year of the reign of the judges, two years earlier and that was done through the arming of Nephite prisoners within the walls. In this battle, there is no reference to comparable prisoners, though they do address prisoners after the fact. The simplest explanation is that the Lamanites had grown overconfident in Nephite assault incompetence. Moroni's own actions speak to this, as the assault was seemingly not pre-planned and was prepared and executed during that very night. 
Number three, assault preparations. The Nephite soldiers did not seem to have any pre-prepared assault support equipment. Mormon tells the reader in Alma chapter 62 verse 21 that Moroni caused that they should prepare in haste strong cords and ladders. It is possible that Moroni had the materials carried for just such an occasion and that previous assaults were not attempted because the enemy had always been more alert. However, that appears less plausible. It was more likely that Moroni saw a great opportunity for a portion of his army to recreate the Second Battle of Gid and get a friendly force inside the city before the Lamanites could wake. Tactical Events Moroni encamped his army on the plains outside the city of Nephiha. I read from Alma 62.19, quote, Now Moroni was desirous that the Lamanites should come out to battle against them upon the plains, But the Lamanites, knowing of their exceedingly great courage and beholding the greatness of their numbers, therefore they durst not come out against them. Therefore they did not come to battle in that day. The entirety of this battle seems to have taken place in about 24 to 30 hours. Moroni showed up on day one on the plains of Nephiha and invited the Lamanites to battle that same day. It could be imagined that emissaries were exchanged as in previous battles and that Moroni tried to use his embassy to flatter the Lamanites out. He was rejected, and then we have the events of the night. It is interesting to note that reputation mattered. There are multiple references to reputation playing a role on Book of Mormon battlefields, and this is one of them. That night, Moroni began a personal reconnaissance of the city, and he identified the fact that he could get to his opponent. I quote from Alma chapter 62, verse 20, and part of verse 21. And when the night came, Moroni went forth in the darkness of the night, and came upon the top of the wall to spy out in what part of the city the Lamanites did camp with their army. And it came to pass that they were on the east by the entrance, and they were all asleep. Close quote. Moroni identified a significant opportunity, and he returned to his camp and caused his forces to act in haste and prepare ropes and ladders for an escalade of the city walls. Moroni then marched with his men to the wall where they scaled the wall and then lowered themselves down into the city. It is probable that the use of the term his men in Alma 62 verse 22 was not necessarily all-inclusive of the Nephite army and probably referred to Moroni's personal force of 2,000 to 4,000, which he had led throughout the war. This supposition is one of logistical practicality. The amount of resources necessary for scaling ladders and ropes, even for a few thousand men, would be significant. Additionally, the time required for 10,000 men to scale and descend a wall would be a matter of hours and extremely difficult to do in any manner of stealth. A smaller force is more likely and much more feasible in terms of resources and the ability to safely execute it. Moroni had previous experience with the fact that an armed force inside a city could make a significant difference well beyond the simple arithmetic of force ratios. It is unclear whether Moroni personally led this assaulting force, and there are tactical arguments for both sides, his leading the assault or his coordinating the attack of the forces outside the walls. It does seem that Moroni was likely to have been inside as the Lamanites saw the armies of Moroni were within the walls, as we are told in Alma 62.24. It is also possible that if Moroni had commanded the force outside the walls, 
then the enemy would have been encircled immediately rather than allowing many to escape. I quote from Alma 62 verses 24 to 26. And now, when the Lamanites awoke and saw that the armies of Moroni were within the walls, they were affrighted exceedingly, insomuch they did flee out by the pass. And now when Moroni saw that they were fleeing before him, he did cause that his men should march forth against them, and slew many, and surrounded many others, and took them prisoners. And the remainder of them fled into the land of Moroni, which was in the borders by the seashore. Thus had Moroni and Pahoran obtained the possession of the city of Nephiha without the loss of one soul, and there were many of the Lamanites who were slain. Close quote. The Lamanites fled from Moroni and left the city. This demonstrated once again the power of shock in a battle and how the emotional impact of unexpected events can cause a force to do that which they otherwise would not do. In this case, fleeing from a defensible position and into the open. Moroni marched his men against them, slew many, surrounded many others, took prisoners, and others escaped to the land of Moroni. Those taken prisoner by the Nephites voiced a desire to join with the people of Ammon rather than continue as Lamanites and return to the land of Nephi. Moroni once again allowed a group to depart and be free. It should be assumed that as previously done, these Lamanite warriors must have entered an oath of peaceful coexistence with the Nephite state. Mormon does not identify this occurring, but it was probably true. Another fact learned through inference is that there was a group of Nephite prisoners held in Nephiha, and their release assisted the army of Moroni. Battlefield Leadership Personal leadership was critical in this battle. Moroni went to the wall and conducted a leader's reconnaissance to make his own assessment and develop his own decisions. What he saw resulted in his inspiring immediate action for a bold plan. He risked his army in this audacious stroke. Consider the possibility of the Lamanites waking and attacking the Nephite army as they were partially involved in crossing the wall. This was a very real risk assumed by Moroni and with his decision. Without his personal knowledge of the situation, he could not have assumed such a risk. Significance Mormon gives a summation of this battle when he states in Alma 62 verse 30, quote, He had obtained possession of the city of Nephiha, having taken many prisoners, which did reduce the armies of the Lamanites exceedingly, and having regained many of the Nephites who had been taken prisoners, which did strengthen the army of Moroni exceedingly, close quote. All of this was done without incurring a single combat casualty, as we are told in Alma 62:26. The victory at Nephiha shaped the upcoming campaign as the Nephites were able to use the shock of their victories and drive opponents from one city to the next. Specifically, Moroni and Pahoran went to the city of Lehi, and the Lamanites fled to the city of Moroni without offering battle. Lessons Learned Military History I want to remind the listener what I mean by the five terms that I use in discussing military history lessons. Identification, Isolation, Suppression, Maneuver, and Destruction Identification is the ability to define and locate the opponent. Isolation is when the opponent is denied the ability to gain outside resources and assistance. Suppression is the process of denying the opponent the freedom of movement and ultimately maneuver. Maneuver is a combination of movement and firepower either in a physical sense or perceived sense, to achieve a position of relative advantage. 
Destruction is the end of the enemy resistance through either physical destruction of resources or the destruction of the opponent's will. Now to address the lessons from this battle. Identification. Moroni found out the information he needed. Personal reconnaissance was critical as it allowed him to know for himself what the situation was and to assess the risks associated with his plan. Isolation. The Lamanites stayed in the city. They refused to come out and they placed themselves in isolation. Suppression. I suppose that Moroni once again had his forces inside and outside the city. The Lamanites were surrounded. Their only hope was to flee. Maneuver. The bold decision to take his army over the wall with limited preparation time meant that Moroni would be able to dominate the interior and the exterior of the city. The Lamanites were faced with an opponent inside their own walls, and this was done, from their perspective, as if by magic. They closed their eyes, and the next thing they knew, the Nephites were in the city. Destruction. The shock caused by the bold escalade completely paralyzed the Lamanite commanders and caused the army to react for self-preservation only. Individually and collectively, they fled to save themselves. Lessons learned. Spiritual. What is to be learned from the details of this battle? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons, or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. I want to point out one commonality that I have addressed before, and will again, surrounding the opponent, which is essential to the successful resolution of this battle. It wasn't as complete in this battle as it was in other battles, but it was still a critical component. One, it is better to defend a city than to retake it. This is a lesson taught in few words by Mormon in Alma 59.9 with profound impact for all of us. It is better to strengthen and fortify each person rather than to rebuild personal armor or fortifications after having had them breached and taken by the enemy. Edification and fortification are preferred over reconstruction. Identify problems when they are small and correct and repair them through continual or daily repentance, rather than waiting for a massive problem that requires a reconstruction of your spiritual, emotional, or physical life. Two, leadership is personal. The leader needs to see the critical events for himself or herself. The decision to assume risk is fundamentally a personal decision, and there is always a small battle waged in the mind of the commander or leader about how much risk is acceptable. The leader needs to see the relevant things personally to make the best assessment when the potential risk is high. Delegation is crucially important, but there are times when the leader must be the person to make the assessment. Three, the enemy makes mistakes. The opponent we face is not perfect, and he makes mistakes. When the opportunity exists, those mistakes must be capitalized on to achieve the greatest benefit with the lowest possible cost. 4. Prepare with haste. Careful preparation is important for success, and Mormon emphasizes Moroni's abilities to prepare his people and the battlefield before battles and during times of peace. In the moment of conflict, the time allowed for preparation often is very limited, but that does not mean that preparation is not accomplished. 
Those who engage in spiritual conflict need to have the tools necessary for the task, even if that means that the tools need to be provided in haste. 5. Do not forget the purpose of the conflict. Once again, Moroni does not allow anger to control his decisions. He demonstrated that he always knew why he was fighting and the benefit of bringing others to his side. Moroni used covenants as a key element at both the Battle of Chance Encounter and the Second Battle of Nephi Ha. Mormon's Metaphor. How does this battle support it? Preparation. I have spoken of the preparing with haste issues. Whether or not Moroni was previously prepared to conduct a city assault, his army responded with discipline to allow Moroni the ability to take advantage of a tremendous opportunity provided by the enemy. Discipline and experience are forms of preparation, even if they are generally created and generically developed. Covenants. The story of these two battles includes both an implication and an expression of covenants entered as the Lamanites who surrendered at the Battle of Chance Encounter expressly entered a covenant, and we can suppose that the Lamanites that surrendered following the Second Battle of Nephi also entered a covenant, as both groups went to live and be with the people of Ammon in and around the land of Melek. One can also suppose that Moroni and Pahoran entered a covenant with each other, as I suppose that Moroni led his army over the wall and Pahoran led the army surrounding the city. It was possible that Moroni could have been isolated and defeated in detail. The story provides such great emphasis on the importance of coordinated and correlated action between commanders on the battlefield. Unity. There is lots of unity in this story. There is the unity of a coordinated plan. There is the unity between Moroni and Pahoran. There is the unity of an army that ultimately surrounded the army of the Lamanites. There is the unity of the surrendering Lamanites from two different forces and in two different battles who unify through covenants with the people of God. Conclusion. This is the last battle of detail in the Amalekite War. The next episode will sum up the war. But this battle serves as a fitting response to the struggles Moroni has experienced over the previous years of this war. He was marching toward Nephiha from what had to be a personally disgusting experience of fighting, capturing, trying, and then executing his own people who refused to fight in defense of the state and who instead preferred to fight against their own people. I can imagine a General Moroni so frustrated that he wanted to get away and to conduct his own personal reconnaissance to clear his head and to understand the possibilities of the battle without the confusion and frustrations of the previous days, weeks, and months. Not only did he succeed in defeating two enemy armies, but both forces included thousands who preferred to covenant with God and join God's covenant people than to return to the fighting against the Nephites. What a challenge this must have been for anyone who had been a Nephite nationalist. Moroni was never such a man. He believed in the principles and covenants upon which the Nephite society was built and existed, and that was what he fought for. Our next episode concludes the Amalekite War as we follow Moroni and Pahoran's armies as they meet with Lehi II and Teancum and surround the Lamanite army led by the Lamanite king, as they defended the last captured Nephite city, poetically named Moroni. Lots of interesting lessons are possible from Moroni's final battle. I invite you to reach out 
and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.